if you would open up your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at two verses, verses 16 and 17. And uh, if you've heard me preach before, you're probably thinking, thank the Lord, it's only two verses. Uh, I promise that I will do my absolute best not to be uh, long-winded. Uh, I'll tell you, I, so every single week, uh, I get up in, uh, in front of people, and, uh, and I'm not afraid uh, to do that. I'm not, sorry, my iPad is doing something goofy right now, and that's where the notes are, and heaven help us if we don't have those. Uh, and so I'm not nervous to stand up in front of people. That, uh, I don't get freaked out by that. I don't get nervous. Uh, but I will tell you that on the times when I have come to preach the word, I am absolutely terrified. And it's not because I'm afraid of what, of what you all might think of me and my ability or lack thereof to preach God's word. It's because uh, I'm preaching God's word. This is the authoritative of the word of God. And it terrifies me to, to speak it. It terrifies me to think through it and see, God, what would you speak through me to your people? And so, brothers and sisters, I would ask you, don't be spectators this morning but be participants in the preaching of God's word by praying for me. Pray for yourselves that you would be receptive to what God uh, will tell you today, what he will speak uh, through his word. Colossians 3, 16 through 17, if you would stand in honor of the authoritative word of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have much to be thankful for. Through Christ, your Son, you have adopted us as sons and daughters. And we have every right and privilege that the Son has. Oh, Father, I pray that that reality would mold us and shape us this morning and that it would well up within us the ability to declare the gospel through song in power and in conviction, and in thankfulness. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> when I first started at Ashland, I was very part-time. Uh, I was just the music guy. Now, a lot of you think I'm still just the music guy. Uh, I do other things. That we, I don't really know what my title is, and I'm okay with that, because I, I love being able to serve uh, the church and serve Jesus through that with the amazing people I get to. But being part-time, uh, you don't make a whole lot of money doing that, right? And so you have to work other jobs. And so I, I worked at the Apple Store, I worked at Chick-fil-A, and I worked at a bank. And so through the course of my, uh, those three years, uh, that doesn't sound too good for my job record, but uh, I was always trying to get here, so it worked. Uh, I met a lot of different kinds of people, and a lot of them, we could say, are on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to their thoughts on God and 
really every single thing you could possibly think about. And so on occasion, through the lovely medium of social media, they'll send me articles and videos and little posts asking my opinion about certain things related to Christianity, related to, to God, when really what they want is they want to fight. And not that long ago, one of them sent me a clip from a very popular show uh, where, where it was a group of people who were standing in a church and they were singing, If we praise Jesus by singing all together, it makes this exercise seem less awkward and bizarre than it really is if you stand back and th look at it through the lens of objectivity. Oh, man. I know, it's like super weird way to open up a sermon, but it's got a point. And so uh, he was trying to get a rise out of me, be like, hey, I know what you do. You lead music in a church. This is stupid. I want you to see how dumb what you do is. And, and it didn't work. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. And the reason why I thought it was hilarious is because it was really quite true. Now, if you're sitting here and you're going, I can't believe he just made a reference to that show here at the church. It means you know what show it is, and it means you've watched it, so you you know, I haven't seen it. I'm judging you more harshly than you would judge me for that. <laughs> it's not a super appropriate show, okay? That's, that's what it is. And, and we have to realize that it is extremely bizarre that we come together to sing the praise of, of God. Like, this is what we're doing. When we come to worship the Lord together through song, we are singing to a man that we believe is God, who 2,000 years ago lived on this earth, walked the roads uh, 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 that we would walk, who ate the foods that we would eat, who then died and then rose from the grave and is now at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all creation. And we sing to him. We've never seen him. We can't see him. He's out. He's, he's beyond us in every conceivable way. And yet we sing to him. It's weird. But we don't think it's weird because we're just used to it, right? If you grew up in the church, this is just what you do. You come to church, you sing a song, you hear a guy preach, uh, and, and then you go home. That's what we do. Uh, our grandparents did that. Their grandparents did that. For all we know, for the whole 2,000 years that the church has been around, they've always been singing the Gaithers and Hillsong. <laughs> but I fear that, that the lack of, of our, uh, of the lack of weirdness that we see congregational gospel singing is has actually harmed us in a way because it makes us fall asleep to the why we do it. Have you ever thought about why we sing? We can give a generic answer to, to worship the Lord, and yes, that would be accurate. That would be correct. But what is the purpose of congregational singing among the people of God? And Paul would tell us that the ultimate purpose of song among the people of God is to proclaim the gospel of God. We are great commission singers. When we sing together, we are witnesses to the power and majesty and glory and might and kindness and love of God through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And, Coloss and Paul is writing to the Colossians trying to communicate this reality. So uh, the Colossian church was not planted by Paul, at least not directly. Uh, so he's never met these people. And yet he's writing them a letter, encouraging them to, uh, to love Christ, to see him as the, uh, for who he is, as this reigning king who is over every molecule in the universe. Uh, it was planted by a man named Epaphras who heard Paul preaching in Ephesus. And then 
through, we don't know, through the prompting of Paul or not, went back to his hometown, preached the gospel, and God used this normal, everyday guy to plant a church because people believed it. And they started meeting together, and they were doing well. Paul's writing, he's dealing with a little bit of a theological controversy that's going on, correcting some of their thoughts. They were primarily a Gentile, uh, non-Jewish people. And so they had all kinds of thoughts from their former pagan religion that, that, that he was dealing with. And in chapter 3, he gets to the practicals. He says, if then, it's verse 1, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. And so they've been dealing with all this earthly stuff, like what to drink, what to eat, what you can't eat, what you can't drink. He says, That's, that, that, that looks like godliness, but that doesn't have anything to do with godliness. Let me show you what, he says, let me show you what a life walking in step with Jesus looks like. And he says, flee sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. He says, don't be angry with one another. Don't have malice towards one another. Don't lie to one another. And then he tells them to do something that we may not expect. He tells them to sing. He says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So the word of Christ here would certainly be the words that Jesus spoke while he was on this earth, right? The, the, the teachings of Jesus. So that would be the Beatitudes, what he said about God, what he said about God being our father, he, how he taught us to pray. Certainly that would be the word of Christ, but this is also bigger than that. It's the word about Christ. What Paul is talking about here is all of the God-breathed Scripture, all of Scripture, every single word from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is about Jesus, and it comes from Jesus. He is the author of all life. He is the author of history. He is the author of this word. Uh, so Paul is talking about the story of God redeeming the world through his Messiah, when, uh, when, when Jesus was resurrected, he was walking down a road just like a normal guy, right? The resurrected Jesus walking down the road, and he meets two of his disciples on the way to Emmaus. And they look concerned, look a little bit sad, and he goes, hey, what's going on with you guys? Why do y'all look so sad? And they look at him, they go, are you an idiot? Are you the only person on the planet that doesn't know what's going on in Jerusalem right now? Remember Jesus, the guy who we all believed was the Messiah? Yeah, he died. And now some crazy ladies are going around saying that he's risen from the grave and we have no idea what to do about it. And Jesus looks at him and goes, y'all, are you kidding me? Like, look, it's me. And they lose it. And then the scripture tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Moses would have been uh, the, the story of, of God bringing people out of slavery from Egypt, giving them the, giving the, his, his people, the Israelites, the law so they would know how to walk in fellowship with him. And the prophets were those who were the mouthpieces of God uh, in the ancient world who would, who would speak the words of God. And Jesus says, all of that, everything that you've known about, uh, about God, about the scripture is about me. All of scripture is about God. This is the gospel that God has established his kingdom through his son by redeeming sinful people from their rebellion against him through the life and death 
and resurrection of Jesus, giving them eternal life forever with him and giving them power in this life to live in step with him through the Spirit. And so this word of Christ, this gospel, is to dwell in us richly. This dwelling is living, making its home in us, permeating every part of our heart and our mind and our body. It's this idea of it hits and then it just spreads through every part of who we are. It makes its home in us. And it's to dwell in us richly, abundantly, overflowing. So he's telling the Colossians, have the word of Christ in you and, and keep meditating on it and mulling it over so that it starts to change you and bubbles over into right living and right praising. Because Paul agrees with the writer of Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, the word of Christ, this gospel, does not enter anyone and leave them unaffected. It transforms who they are from the inside out, conformed into his likeness. And so we, like the church at Colossae, do the same thing today. We are to do the same thing to get there. And we do it in all kinds of ways. We come on Sunday morning. You're doing it right now to hear the preaching of God's word to you, to hopefully let it dwell within you, make its home in you. We do it when we go to our Bible fellowship groups and we seek to work out how the scripture applies to our lives. We do it through memorizing scripture. But today, Paul is telling, God is calling us through Paul today to, that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by singing the gospel because gospel singing implants the gospel in us. Gospel singing implants the gospel in us. Think about this for a second. The church of Colossae was planted just a few years after Jesus was, uh, was raised from the dead. They didn't have this. They couldn't, go, they couldn't take the family donkey down to the local lifeway and get the, the first century version of the Bible. That wasn't a thing they could do. In fact, at the time when this letter was written to them, the four Gospels weren't even written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so this word of Christ that is supposed to dwell in them richly, how is that supposed to happen? Well, what they did is they heard the Gospel of this conquering King Jesus who saves people from their sins, and then they immediately put it to music. They sang it, and then those songs spread throughout the churches, and they would sing to each other, and that's how the word of Christ would dwell in them richly. See, music has a unique ability to help us remember. Now, I am not a neuroscientist. Shock, I know. Uh, but in studying this, I started studying the connection between uh, our brains and music, and neuroscientists are, are kind of just now starting to get this, and they're using it in all using music in all kinds of ways to help people who have memory issues uh, remember things to build up their memory. I, I was watching a, a video, a uh, tragic video of, of, of this Alzheimer patient who's, who's sitting in his room with his family around him. And the kids are playing and whatnot and the, the, his uh, children are trying to talk to him and he's, he knows that he should know them but he doesn't. And it's heartbreaking. And then the, the, they start playing this song that, that the family said was, was one of his favorites from when he was younger. 
And after a few seconds, it's, it's almost freaky how it happens. It's almost like a light turns on in his eyes and you can see him and he starts singing this song that he probably hasn't heard in 20, 30 years when he can't even look his son in the face and remember what his son looks like. So music has this profound ability. If, if we started playing your favorite song right now from when you were 15, some of you might be really embarrassed if you wouldn't want us to play the, whatever that favorite song was. Uh, but it might take you a minute, even if you haven't heard it in 20-plus years, but you'd start singing it, you know? Some of y'all start singing, you know, something from ACDC or whatever, which we're not going to do that. So uh, the only one I can think of is a really bad one, so I'm not going to do that. It's not good. <laughs> but see, God wired us up this way. Uh, this idea of music and memory is actually biblical uh, we see in Deuteronomy 31, Israel is about to go into the promised land that God uh, said he would give them. And, he, and God's talking to Moses and he says, Moses, here's the deal. These people are going to forsake me and go and worship other gods. And so he doesn't tell them to give, he doesn't tell them to give them a big long speech to hoorah them and rally them into uh, believing God, uh, tr trusting in the Lord and making sure they never forsake him. Although that would have been fine. He tells him to write a song, and it's a long song. I mean, it probably took 45 minutes to get through that thing. And he gives him a song. And he says, teach it to him, because, Deuteronomy 31, 21, when many evils and troubles have come upon them because of their disobedience, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Now, this song probably wouldn't be played on Caleb because it's not super encouraging or positive, but, uh, but it, it did what it was supposed to do. Years down there, I'm sorry, Meredith, Caleb's fine. It's okay. We, uh, see, God knows that this song was going to be remembered. That it was going to be passed down from generation to generation. So music has this profound ability to drive words deep into our brains and our hearts so it's nearly impossible for us to forget. And oftentimes, the songs we sing dictate our thoughts about God, our theology more than anything else. And that is why the content of our singing is so vitally important. What we sing matters, and that's why we don't just sing any old song here at Ashland. I know uh, I've got favorite songs of mine from when I was younger that we don't do because they don't tell the absolute truth about God. And, and, and I don't, so we, we take every song that we sing and rake it over and over again through a gospel comb to make sure that it's saying the truth about God in a profound way, that it's singable, and that the style fits with what we're actually capable of doing. And even then, sometimes we push that one a little bit. That's how we, that's how we determine it. So when you come to you know, tell me, like, hey, we should sing this song. Know that I'm going to rake it over the coals to make sure that it's good enough to, to uh, sing here at the church. And it's no slight to you, but here's the deal. I cannot, in good conscience, sing a song that says anything that is remotely false, distorted, or, or, or obscures, or gives an unclear view of God and his gospel because of the songs that we sing. It's not going to happen and so we carefully curate our musical canon. And we change lyrics all the time. You've probably noticed that. If like there's a song that you know and you're singing it here and you got your eyes closed and you're, you're in it and all of a sudden there's a, what, that ain't what they say on the radio like that. He changed it. You know, it kind of trips you up a little bit. That's on purpose, not to trip you up. Well, maybe. Uh, it, it's so that we're more clear about what we are singing. There's a really popular song right now 
that if you know it and you love it, you're going to get really mad at me. Um, so you, whatever, we'll brace for that. Um, and it's a, it really is a great song. It's got a singable melody. It talks about the love of God for us in a passionate way. But I have one, I have a problem with one word. It's just one word. That's it. But it's the title of the song. So you, is it pretentious to change the title of the song? A little bit, you know, you can't really do that. I'll probably do it anyway. Uh, and it's the song Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. Now, it's, if you haven't heard it, it's, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending love of God. Some of you guys know it. Okay. Uh, good. Maybe nobody knows this, and I'm just going to rail against this. No big deal. Uh, and, and it's a great song, and I, wa- I wanted to do it here so badly, but I just, God's love is not reckless. It's not. And I'm going to go on a rant for about one and a half minutes. Uh, if God's love is reckless, then that terrifies me because that means he's trying to figure it out. It's like a bull in a china shop going, oh, man, they messed up again. What are we going to do about this? Okay, uh, let's see. Uh, if I, maybe if, I got it, Jesus, you're going, man. You know, I, that, that's not the way that works. God's love was on us before the foundation of the world began in Christ. God's plan was always to redeem a people for himself to be eternally secure through his beloved son for the maximization of his glory. I don't think that's reckless. That's relentless. So case in point, what we sing matters. And so uh, one of the reasons we sing gospel song is that that word that we sing gets implanted into us, right? But we don't just sing gospel song for our own benefit. This indwelling word is not only for us, but it's also for the benefit of others. And so we see that while gospel singing implants the gospel in us, it also implants the gospel in others. Continue with me in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in uh, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teaching and admonishing. The primary purpose of singing the word of Christ is to proclaim the gospel. It is a great commission act. And it's a great commission grace that God has given us to one another. See, the the, the Colossian church, uh, likely, they didn't have a full record of, of this whole Bible. Right? They, they didn't. They, they, they liked, I mean, they had the Old Testament, right? The Jews that were, that were there could have instructed them in that way. Uh, but, but they did not have the full canon of Scripture. So the way that they learned the words of Christ was through these songs. I don't know if you know this, but about halfway through your Bible, there's 150 songs. God gave us a songbook. It's called the Psalms. And it's an amazing songbook full of rich truth. It's the inspired word of God. Of course it is. Uh, and so, we, and so uh, early on, they would have sung the Psalms. See, these Gentiles, which would have been most of the believers in Colossae, did not have the oracles of God. They did not grow up knowing the truth about God, how he'd worked all throughout history to bring about this salvation that they were uh, the recipients of. And so these Psalms taught them, as they sang them, taught them the truth about God, the history of how he loved this people, even though they were, they were resistant to him, even though they disobeyed him, even though they ran away from him. And it taught them the wonder and majesty and goodness and grace and fury and terror and justice of God throughout the ages. Because in this culture, most of these people were illiterate. 
even if they had this, they couldn't sit down and, and, and parse Greek verbs. And, and Well, actually, they probably could have done that, but uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't read this. They couldn't have figured out how, uh, even what this word was saying. And so these songs gave them their right thoughts about God because they were coming from pagan backgrounds where they worshipped all kinds of gods with all kinds of, of anti-gospel, anti-God thinking. But they also wrote New Testament hymns. This is new to me, and this is, is kind of exciting for somebody who, who uh, is very much interested in the songs of the church. Uh, the New Testament contains hymns that were likely sung around the time uh, that the church was started. One of which is in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Paul is uh, writing to Timothy, instructing him on, on how to be a pastor and how to uh, structure the church. And then uh, he, he, he just does this little pause here for a little praise break. And it's, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, suffer, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. This would have been a so part of a song that they would have sung to canonize their thoughts, to catechize their thoughts about God, who he is, uh, and how they are to Live. There's another one in 1 Timothy 3.16. For the sake of time, I won't read it. You can look that up on your own. And there's, there's a ton of them. A lot of people believe that 1 Colossians uh, 15 through 20 is a psalm that would have, been, uh, that, that would have been, been sung. And so we sing not only to, 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 to let the word of Christ dwell in us, but to teach one another the truth about God, the words of Christ. See, in our gospel singing, there's a unique one anotherness about it. Notice it says teach and admonish one another because you don't worship God in an isolated vacuum, right? Like nobody's here in a little booth and it's just you and Jesus, right? That whole thought of like, when I worship, it's just me and the Lord. No, it's not. Those other voices are pretty loud, you know, and they're around you and that's a good thing. That's a grace to you, even if it's terrible, if it sounds horrible. You're sitting there rubbing elbows and sometimes... Uh, you know, like we've got some, uh, a member out here who's uh, uh, fairly, uh, uh, she moves a lot when she worships. And I've seen her almost a few times almost smack people in the face. You can't ignore that, right? There's people that are around you. And so you have to consider them. That this teaching and admonishing is necessary for all of us to engage in. So you are actually, like, this might be kind of weird, but when we sing gospel song, it's you're singing to one another. You are absolutely singing to the Lord. We are called to do that. We'll get to that in just a second. But you're also looking each other in the eye and singing to one another. Now, it'd be kind of weird if all of a sudden I was like, there is a fountain. Like just stared you down. Like, you know, but I, I actually, I used to worship, worship the Lord through song primarily with my eyes closed. And it still happens. You know, I mean, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But when I, but I started studying uh, the purpose of, of why we worship. And so now a lot of times I open my eyes and look at you all. And it's a little awkward, you know? Like it's kind of weird. It sort of freaks me out. But I want to be reminded that I am not in this alone. And, and we have to be engaged in this way, both as the teacher and the student, the discipler and the disciplee. And here's how this often works out. See, there's days when you are nestled in your self-righteousness, thinking that you got it all together. Like God loves you because you're such a good person. You've done everything right. You're doing a good, good job at work. You didn't yell at your kids for 10 minutes. And you think you've got it all together. You need someone 
to sing out that you were condemned under God's law, rightly you stood accused, so that you can confess my righteousness, Jesus must rest in you. And there are days when you're on the opposite end of the spectrum and, you, and you're, you're so uh, uh, oppressed by your guilt and your shame that, that you cannot believe in the love of God, at least that it's not for you because you're too far gone. You need someone to sing to you when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul has been set free. For God, the just, has sat, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And there are times when the diagnosis will come and it's bad. It's cancer. And we need to see what true faith and trust in the Lord looks like when you sing in the face of death. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Because you're declaring that cancer is not the victor Jesus is. One of the most profound moments in uh, the ministry God has allowed me to have was uh, in visiting a saint who was on her deathbed. Uh, it's likely that many of you at this point don't know who Nancy Pointer is. Um, a lot of you still do, but we've had a lot of new people come and um, uh, Nancy Pointer was a, was a saint who, who passed on uh, to be in the Savior's arms a few years ago. And uh, she died of cancer, the, and towards the end of her life, she was in hospice, and so we went and visited her fairly regularly. And uh, I remember visiting her one time, and she wasn't doing too well. Um, she, could, she could speak, but it was very raspy and hoarse, very difficult for her. She was very, very weak. And so I went in there and prayed with her, and we read some scripture, and then I asked her if there's anything else I can do. And uh, she, she managed to gravel out sing. And so uh, there was another woman there who I did not know. Uh, she was Filipino from a local church. And uh, we had very different singing styles. She was clearly classically trained, and uh, I am not. So uh, that was kind of an interesting dynamic. But we started singing, Be Thou My Vision. And she didn't sing much. But I remember when we got to the point where you sing, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Her mouth was moving and something like sound was coming out. And it shook me because on her deathbed, in the face of, uh, of death, she was singing of victory. She taught me what full dependence on the grace of God looked like in her final hours. So we teach one another the gospel through our gospel singing. But this one anotherness isn't only for teaching and admonishing one another. We, we, we don't just go, I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to teach you. We also have to be recipients of that teaching as well. We consider one another. We think about one another while we are singing. But it's not just for teaching, it's to permeate all we do in singing gospel song. And what we see next is that gospel singing displays the glorious diversity of the kingdom of God. Now, if you're looking ahead, you're going, hey, this, this, this doesn't say anything about diversity, bud. Like, what are you talking about? 
Uh, well, at first glance, that's what I thought too. Uh, but that's why you study. Continuing on, we're to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So uh, Paul is writing this letter to an ethnically and culturally diverse people. Jews and Gentiles are in here, right? And so these words, psalms and hymns, are, are culturally wrapped terms. Psalms, at this point, would have referred to primarily the 150 uh, psalms that are in the, the Jewish canon. And so when he says psalms, the Jews in the congregation go, oh yeah, I know what those are, and those are about Jesus? What? But when he says hymns, while Jesus and his disciples and while the people of God sang hymns, that word in that context, in that culture, would have immediately smacked the Gentiles in the face. And it would have been a scandalous, a scandalous thing to say. Ken Poles, who's a worship pastor, a hymn writer, and an editor for, a fa- for Founders Ministry Online, uh, he says this, when Paul spoke of singing hymns, he wasn't thinking traditional or reminding the church to include or revive some of the old songs from the past. He had something more radical in mind. He said, claim the music of the culture and sing it to God's glory. So Greeks and Romans sang hymns to their false gods, their kings, and their war heroes throughout the ages. They, they sung praise to them, and Paul sang saying. The psalms, the hymns that you used to sing to those false gods, write new ones to the true God. Take those, uh, take those hymns and make them about Jesus. So I, I now have biblical justification for taking Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah and making it about Jesus. And I'm sure that the people who are in charge of the copyright uh, there, I'm sure Sony is going to be like, oh yeah, totally, you can do whatever you want with that. And so the, you're talking about two very different cultures here. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details because it would be way too long and unnecessary, but uh, Greco-Roman hymns and, and Jewish psalms, very different, remarkably different in every conceivable way. So these would have been very distinct musical styles, alien to one another, and yet this colliding of cultures finds harmony in the gospel. Paul is calling these Colossian believers to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts, to which... Indeed, they were called in one body. That's verse 15 in Colossians 3. He's calling them to lay aside their cultural preferences for the sake of the gospel. So, how do we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts in singing? Well, we sacrifice our musical preference on the altar of love for one another. See, music can be remarkably unifying. I was recently talking to a a young lady who went to a concert, and she was kind of taken aback by the diversity that was at the concert because it made no sense why, why all these people would be together. You had folks who were uh, from a very much like an urban context. You had folks who were, uh, 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 you know, like hipsters with their like ironic t-shirts and their glasses that probably look like this. Uh, the, the, there, there were like these fashionista girls who were dressed in really expensive clothing there, and uh, none of it made any sense. You had black folks, white folks, Hispanic folks, people from all walks of life, male and female, and, and, and so they came there because they loved the music, right? You go to any concert, that's what's going on. There's, there's going to be people from every creed, religion, political affiliation, etc. at that show, and you don't care. You're just there to enjoy U2 or Zach Brown Band or Taylor Swift or whoever you're there to listen to, Right? 
So it can be remarkably unifying, but it can also be remarkably divisive, and it primarily is in the church. Back in the 80s and 90s, you had the worship wars. I don't know if you, if you, if you were alive during that time. You know what I'm talking about. If not, uh, church music started to change in the 80s and 90s, and uh, it caused some major rifts. Uh, these, these new songwriters were writing very simplistic, both melodically and, and lyrically, songs that just repeated over and over again. And people who were, who were committed to the traditional hymns that were written by Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley, etc., were going, no, that's not true worship. That's horrible. Stop doing that. And so you had this really intense divide between traditional, quote-unquote, and contemporary. Right? You can still see this on church marquees. Uh, 8.30 traditional service, 10.30 contemporary worship service, right? That's how, that's how they, we decided to solve the problem. But that's not the problem. The problem is that that answer to that issue is anti-gospel. Because, because gospel love sacrifices and serves for one another. But so often our musical preferences are golden calves to bow down to. Rather than a thing to sacrifice. So we hear a song that we don't like and we just kind of shut down, right? Like you, do, you may not be like obstinate, but you're just kind of standing there like, all right, I'll let, I'll let the young ones sing this or I'll let the old people sing this, right? You just kind of stand there. You might mumble it a little bit, you know, like kind of let it out just a little bit. But then the next song comes on and the next song is your song, right? And, and almost in, in like a pendulum swing, you know, you, you, you start singing it more aggressively, boldly, and loudly so that folks around you can hear it. Basically, like, I like this song better than the last one. You know, like, that's basically what, what, what you're doing there. And that is so wicked. Because we showcase that the word of Christ is working within us, that it's dwelling within us, not only when we submit our preferences to one another, right? Not only when we tolerate, like, okay, like, you can have your, your style, and I'll have my style, and we'll just bear with it. We'll just deal with it, right? But when we celebrate and delight in the musical and cultural preference of one another, right? And so the way that you do this is when a song comes on you don't like, praise the Lord because the gospel and the kingdom of God is so much bigger than you. We, and it's easy for me to say, right? Because I'm the guy that gets to make the decisions about what songs we sing. You know, on the day that I didn't lead worship, I was still choosing the songs. Now, David picked half of them, so, you know, it, I'm, I'll let control a little bit. And so it's easy for me to say, right? You can look at me and go, well, Clay, you're the guy that gets to pick it all, so you just pick the songs you like. That's not true. We do songs all the time that I don't like, in styles that I don't like. Like, I was digging the, the version of, my, uh, of Victory in Jesus today, but not because that's my preferred style. Like, they did it great. They did it really good. By the way, pause. Uh, we like the band sounds really, really good. Uh, I don't know what it sounds like because I'm up here, but like y'all did a really good job. So kudos for that. Uh, that's not what I would have done, right? Praise the Lord! It was so much fun for me to go. This is not what I would have done. Uh, the kingdom of God is so much bigger than me. It there's people in the kingdom of God who like bluegrassy southern gospel. I don't even know what that was, but it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> we need to do more of that. I remember uh, the first Sunday that Miles, who plays drums for us, came here. We did a song by the Newsboys uh, about the kingdom of God being all over the world. And uh, uh, the chorus is, holy, holy, hallelujah. He, reign, he reigns. That's what it's called. I can't remember. Right? 
and I and I, just being totally transparent, like I can't stand that song. The lyrics are fine, but it's it's just it's not my my preference stylistically speaking. And, and I was talking with Miles one day, and he was like, "Yeah, I remember the first time I came here, you were singing that song." And I remember that came on, and I was like, "What? Like how? Why? Why are you singing this?" You know, because he and I we kind of jive in the same way. I didn't tell him I was going to say this, so if he gets mad at me, oh well. Uh, but but and and then we got to have, we got to have a conversation. Like, yeah, I get to do that all the time. And I'll tell you, it really is a true joy. And the reason why we do this is because of Revelation 7, 9 through 10. It gives us a window into the kingdom of heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Y'all, we're going to be in, in heaven with the Lord, with all kinds of people from all over the world. Do you think we're going to be singing primarily Chris Tomlin? I don't think so. We're going to be singing to African drum beats that we can barely even understand. We're going to be singing in, in, this, in Calypso style. There's going to be some new form of jazz that's even better than what it is right now. We're going to be singing rock songs from, from, from Great Britain and all kinds of stuff because the kingdom of God is not Richmond, Kentucky. It's the whole world. And we should delight in what God has done. We don't just, the other thing that congregational worship and gospel singing does is it magnifies grace. Continuing on in 16, I broke it down pretty significantly here. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the posture of our gospel singing. This is, this is the heart part. This is the hard part. Because oftentimes we come here and it's difficult to sing with a thankful heart. And yet, we have much to be thankful for because we, who were once alienated, separated from God, and hostile towards him in our minds, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled to himself in his own body of flesh by death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We stand before God because of Jesus, holy and blameless. And so when we sing gospel songs, we have the gospel on our minds and our emotions are ignited towards God. Gospel singing fuses the word of Christ and our emotions together. It fuses those two things together, and it gives us an avenue to, to passionately express our love for God. Now, some of you guys are like, I'm not an emotional person. You know, like, I don't feel that. Okay. Uh, my wife jokes with me that I'm like a robot, um, and that may seem kind of weird because I'm a little, like, I'm all kind of crazy and whatnot, um, but, but I, have, I really have two emotions. That's it. Uh, I guess you'd call it happiness. Like, it's just I'm good. You know, that sounds really bad, like I'm like sad. I'm not, I'm good, like I'm just super content most of the time, or mad. Like that's the end of my spectrum. And when something legitimately sad happens, I'm sad. And that's about it. And so when I, when I talk about emotion, our emotions and our heart being engaged in singing, uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard for me to, to even uh, communicate that because it's not my natural bend, right? 
But when we are dwelling on the gospel and our position before the Lord and what he has done for us, there is, we almost can't even help it. It's this uh, dwelling in you richly. It's an overflowing of praise that comes out of our mouth as we are declaring the gospel out. We're hearing it from our own voice, from those around us. It comes back in, reminds us of the truth we are singing, and it bubbles up into delight and joy in God. But sometimes it's hard to be thankful because your mom's on her deathbed. And even though she's a saint and you know where she's going, she's going to be gone from your life. Or your son refuses to come to church because he doesn't believe the gospel and he thinks it's stupid. Sometimes you, you come in here after you've just sat in a doctor's office next to an ultrasound machine and the life that was in you is no longer in you. And so you come in here and you go, I can't sing. Can't do it. I'm barely able to speak. Well, God, Jesus is the man of sorrows. He took every sorrow you have, every, uh, all your shame, all your guilt, and put it on his shoulders and wore it, bearing the wrath of God for you. And so we sing to have that word dwell within us. We sing for the sake of one another and then we respond in thankfulness to God. And here's the good news. Even if you come in and you can't sing, I don't mean technical ability. Who gives a rip? You may not sing up here, but you can sing out there. Even if you can't sing, because the pain is so deep, you've got 300 people around you who can sing for you, and they'll sing to you. Be mindful of one another. Lastly, Gospel singing is sung through the gospel singer. Look at me in verse 17. I know that was, don't worry, like, I know that we're on time. In 17 is just as long as 16, 17 is real quick. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through so Paul balloons this idea out to literally everything. Everything. Now, for the purpose of time and, and, and the point of this particular sermon, uh, singing falls under the category of everything in the event that you weren't making that connection. Paul says to sing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? That's because our worship is pathetic. We are not good worshipers of God. As soon as we leave this place, even right now, <laughs> most of, some of us may have thoughts that are just, we're forgetting God, we're not acknowledging him, we're thinking about lunch plans, we're thinking about all the things we're going to do on Monday and whatnot, so we're not here acknowledging the Lord and his grace for us. We're already drifting away. My goodness, by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, certainly most of us, have forgotten even to acknowledge God, much less worship him with our full hearts. We are called to worship the Lord with our full heart, mind, soul, and body, and we're terrible at it. You sin all the time. This week, I rightfully disciplined my children, but I yelled at them, and it was unrighteous anger. That's wicked. That's wicked. Uh, you're you're going to go, you know, this morning, you probably were trying to get all the kids in the van, and you lost your cool with them, 
It's, it's understandable. Again, sin. <laughs> you go to work, you may fudge the numbers a little bit. Or you may flirt with a coworker. Nothing's going to happen, but it's just kind of fun. We forget God all the time and don't even acknowledge his work and presence in our lives. And so when we sing in the name of the Lord Jesus, what we are doing is we are singing in his merit, his virtue, his excellency in his life. See, our worship, if we were to come in here and go, God, you accept me for me. Look at all the things that I've done this week and I'm going to praise you now. That song would come to him as a putrid stench that he would not accept. He calls our good works, quote unquote, menstrual rags. I'm not making this up. That's what the word of God says. And so when we come in our own merit, in our own name, our worship is unacceptable. But, when, but our worship through Christ in the name of the Lord Jesus, God's beloved son, it is perfected. And the wonderful, pleasing aroma to him. That is why the first song we sing every single Sunday is explicit gospel. The Jesus is a lordship and authority over death and the cosmos, over our sin and our, and, and our place with him. This morning we sang our God is a, is a lion. He has the ability to crush sin, to defeat death, but he's a lamb who went into death so that you and I would not have to. Every single Sunday, that's why we start with a gospel song because I, we don't want to ever be under the false impression that we can come to the Lord on our own terms. There is good news. Our worship is pathetic, but we follow and worship in the name of the only true worshiper. Jesus is your worship leader. In Hebrews chapter 2, speaking of, of how Jesus relates to us, how he is our brother, and that he has suffered as we more than we have, but as we have suffered. It says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's a quote from Psalm 22 that the Lord Jesus himself stated while he was hanging on the cross, dying for your sin. Here's what this means. When the people of God come together to sing gospel song, Jesus joins them in that song and leads their worship. So as you sing, your song is perfected by Christ. Sing in the name of Jesus and proclaim the gospel loudly with fervor, with excitement, with passion. Let's pray.